James chapter 5, verse 10. Last week was suffering part one. This week is suffering part two. And the title of the message is God and Suffering. James, right toward the end of your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 10, says the following. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would encourage my dear friends who are suffering. Lord, that includes just about every one of us, to some degree or another. And I pray that you would build your church through this word this morning about patience in suffering. Help us. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 1984 was a very, very good year. Why, you ask? Because that's the year I met my wife. Oh, yeah. Sweet Desi. That's a whole other story, which I would like to tell you right now, but I'm not going to. But 1984 held some other events, okay? Who was president in 1984? That's right, Ronald Reagan. In 1984, we had the Olympics in Los Angeles, which the then Soviet Union boycotted. As well, in 1984, the Apple Macintosh was introduced on January 24th, 1984. 1984, believe it or not, was the Space Shuttle Discovery's maiden voyage. Greg, that's just for you. On August the 30th, 1984. And on 1984, someone was born. Do you know who was born in 1984? On December 30th, 1984? LeBron James. Man, I'm old. (laughs) That's right. LeBron James. No comments on LeBron James. But, last... Last but not least, the whole reason I'm bringing up 1984 is this. A movie was released in 1984. That's right, the original Karate Kid. Now, about two weeks ago, I said, all right, guys, I'm old school. You know, this new Karate Kid was just released, you know, 2010. It's in the theaters now. But the best one is the 1984. So we went out and rented it. We watched the 1984 Karate Kid starring Ralph Macchio as Daniel LaRusso and Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi. I love Mr. Miyagi. So here's the storyline in case you didn't see it. Those of you that are culturally bereft of, you know, the important things. Here's the storyline of the 1984 Karate Kid. It begins with Daniel, Daniel LaRusso, and his mother moving from New Jersey to California. She has a wonderful new job, but Daniel discovers that a dark-haired Italian boy with a Jersey accent doesn't fit into the blonde surfer crowd, especially when he tries to date one of their girlfriends. Daniel manages to talk his way out of some fights, but is finally cornered by several who belong to the same karate school. As Daniel is passing out from the beating he receives, Mr. Miyagi jumps over the fence, the elderly Japanese gardener jumps over the fence, jumps into the fray, and saves Daniel by outfighting a half-dozen teenagers. Mr. Miyagi and Daniel find out that the real motive behind the boy's violence 
is their karate teacher. So Miyagi promises to teach Daniel how to fight and arranges for a fight at a citywide karate contest some months off. Now here's the kicker. When the training starts, Daniel can't understand what he's being shown. Miyagi seems more interested in having Daniel wax his cars than teaching him karate. As a matter of fact, the first day of training, Mr. Miyagi greets Daniel and he says, you're going to wax my fleet of antique cars. And in a very distinct accent, one of the best lines of the movie, he says, Daniel-san, wax on, wax off. All right. Daniel proceeds to wax all of these antique cars, suffering tremendously, and all the while wondering, why is Miyagi making me wax cars? I want to learn how to fight. I want to learn karate. Here's what turned it for Daniel. He looked at Miyagi, and what did he see? A, he remembered, he remembered his greatness. He remembered that he was able to defeat six teenagers. And two, he remembered, hey, this guy really does care for me. He really does care for me. So I may not understand this, and I may be suffering, and it may seem like it has nothing to do with my goal. This guy, he's great. He's a great karate fighter, and he cares for me. I think this morning, as we look at suffering, I think many of us can be like Daniel. We find ourselves, metaphorically speaking, not literally, but in a sense, waxing antique cars and thinking this has nothing to do with what I really need to get done in life. We find ourselves suffering under the training of a God who we kind of know is great. I mean, we're following him because we've seen his greatness. And and we kind of know that he cares for us. But we're really tempted right now. We're, We're tempted by, what does this have to do? I don't understand, wax on, wax off. All I understand is that it's hard and it's painful and it seems meaningless. And what God is wanting to speak to you this morning, dear friend, you who are suffering, is that he is great and he is compassionate and merciful. He cares for you. He is calling us to suffer patiently as we consider his greatness, or as you look in your notes, the theme of this message, be patient in suffering as you consider God's compassion and mercy. Be patient in suffering as you consider the one who's called you to suffer, who's training you through the suffering, as you believe that not only is he great, oh, he's great, but he's compassionate and he's merciful. Now, in verses 7 through 9, God was telling us last week, be patient in suffering as you consider my coming. And now in verses 10 and 11, God is saying, be patient in suffering as you consider my character. My character. You see, friends, God's character, God's character is revealed in suffering. That's the point here. James is saying, Be patient in suffering as you consider God's compassion and mercy, as you consider God's greatness, as you consider God's character, because suffering reveals God like nothing else. And he brings two examples, two real-world examples. If we were in a court of law and someone was accusing God of being uncompassionate and unmerciful because of your suffering, and in fact, that court of law could be your very mind right now. 
It could be the very situation you're suffering in. And God is on trial. And maybe even you're the prosecutor at times. But most likely the prosecutor is Satan, this world, that is accusing God of being unmerciful and unkind. And why are you suffering? And I don't understand this. Why do I have to do wax on, wax off? This has nothing to do with anything. And so there's a trial going on, and God's on trial. Here today, God, James, brings forth two witnesses. Two witnesses, as it says in verse 10. Look at it again. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. I call the first witness to testify on behalf of God that God is compassionate and merciful. Would the prophets please enter? Now, probably, probably, in James' mind, he was thinking of two particular prophets. Now, in the waiting room, he might have had Ezekiel. He might have had Nehemiah. He might have had Micah. He might have had Hezekiah. You know who he's probably going to bring in as his star witnesses here? Two. Jeremiah and Isaiah. Now remember, James being the half-brother of Jesus, writing to probably a Jewish church. These would be Jewish individuals who had been now saved by Messiah, Jesus Christ. So they would have understood as a Jew immediately, ah, the prophets. You must be talking about Jeremiah and Isaiah. Because when it says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Listen, man, these two guys, they suffered. They suffered and they were patient in their suffering, point one. These two prophets were patient in their suffering. Why? Because they considered God faithful who had called them to suffer. How had God called them to suffer? This is how he had called them to suffer. He had called them to suffer by declaring his name. You see what it says there in uh, verse 10, at the end of verse 10? Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, how did they suffer? Well, let's just get that right out of the way. Let, let's go ahead and get the character and the, uh, the veracity and the authority of these witnesses right out of the way. I mean, as soon as a witness comes onto the platform, a good attorney is going to establish why they are a good witness. So you know the first question they're going to ask Jeremiah? As he, gets, as he gets seated. So, Jeremiah, <clears throat> what's at issue is here is whether God is merciful and, and compassionate in the midst of suffering. Could you please tell the court how you suffered? And Jeremiah said, yes, I'd be happy to. As a matter of fact, why don't you all turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. Why don't you turn to Hebrews eleven thirty-seven right now? If, you, if you're at James, just make a left-hand turn. It's the book right before it. Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. Says Jeremiah, uh, that's my testimony. Oh, really, Jeremiah, what do you mean? Well, you know where it says there, they were stoned. Uh, I was put to death by having large rocks thrown at my body until I lay lifeless. Uh, I was thrown into a pit, an old well that had been abandoned that was full of mud that was putrid, and I was left to die until someone came by and pulled me out. But then shortly thereafter, I kept preaching God's word, and they killed me by throwing huge rocks at me. Okay, Jeremiah, we, we've got it. Thank you. And what would you testify, Jeremiah? Well, sir, I would testify that it was worth it. Because if you'll recall now, um, like 700 years later, Jesus came, and he said something like, blessed are those 
who are reviled and persecuted and all kinds of evil are uttered against them for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Well, Jesus was talking, she's talking about me. And I can testify, because I've been in heaven all this time, that the reward is great. And it was worth the big rocks hitting me and knocking me out. It was worth sitting in the mud and the stench, even though at times I wondered, why did God call me to preach to people that wouldn't listen? But I testify that God is merciful and good and compassionate. Thank you, Jeremiah. You can, you can have a seat. I'd like to call in Isaiah. Isaiah comes in. Isaiah, could you please give us uh, your, uh, your reason for being a star witness? Well, yes, I can. Now, if you're still at that uh, Hebrews 11.37, yes, we are. You'll notice that it goes on to say they were stoned. They were sawn in two. Ooh. Yeah, that was me. That was me. I mean, just so you know... Um, Textual accounts of the deaths of Jeremiah and Isaiah in early Jewish and Christian extra-biblical literature really give us this historical fact. Pretty much Isaiah was sawn in two. Not a delightful way to go. And what did Isaiah say? It was worth it. It was worth it. Because remember when I wrote Isaiah 52 by the inspiration of God and I talked about that one that was disfigured for me, that one that was broken for me, that one that was wounded for me, that was my Jesus. And though I didn't see it clearly when I was dying, when they were sawing me in two and my flesh was being ripped from my body, the instant I got into heaven, I saw the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. It's worth it. I testify. I testify. See, what what Jeremiah and Isaiah discovered is the greatness of God. That's what they saw. That's what they saw. They considered God great. That's why they were patient in suffering. And look at verse 11a. Back to James 5. Verse 11a. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. These prophets were blessed because they considered God's greatness. They were blessed because they remained steadfast in preaching God's word. And this morning, I just want to speak to you. I believe this first point, I believe this first group of star witnesses is speaking to those of us who are suffering because we are faithful in declaring God's word. As it says in James 5.10, we are suffering why? Because we speak in the name of the Lord. I believe it's, it's speaking to all of us who are receiving, maybe not being sawn in two or being killed by rocks that are crushing our skull, but we are dying to the approval of man. We are dying maybe to a promotion at work. We are dying to the desire to be respected because people think we're fools and they mock us because we preach a gospel that in the world's eyes is foolish. Christ Jesus, him crucified. And I believe God is saying to you and to me, let us be steadfast in our suffering. Let us be patient in our suffering. Let us preach the gospel. Let us not back down from it. Because just as Jeremiah and Isaiah were steadfast and were blessed, oh friends, so we would be blessed. We will be blessed. We will be blessed as we share the gospel patiently and suffer and don't complain. That's what I believe God is saying to us there. It's in the suffering that our faith matures. You see, at the very beginning of James, James says to us in James 1, he says, blessed are those who when they endure trials, suffer patiently. Why? Because it matures their faith. Suffering matures us. 
Suffering causes us to grow so that we might honor God in our lives. It causes us to draw closer to God. It causes us to learn how to pray. It causes us to trust the Lord. Now, the second example of patience and suffering, and in your notes, number two, Job was patient in suffering. Look at verse 11b. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, first of all, I'm assuming everybody here knows about Job, but if you don't, let me just very quickly give you a primer on Job, okay? First of all, the book of Job is in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in your Bibles, just turn back there for a moment. If you find the book of Psalms, which is kind of right in the middle of your Bible, and then you just make a left-hand turn on Psalms, you're going to find Job. It is the oldest book of the entire Bible. It's an ancient, ancient text. And if you go to Job chapter 1, we're not going to read all of these texts, but we're going to drop into Job. You're going to find something about Job. Here's what you're going to find out about Job. Job was a blameless man. He was a righteous man. He was, what what it says here in Job chapter 1, he was the greatest man of the East. He had seven children I can't, I don't remember how many thousands of cattle and sheep and farms and land. Listen, it all translates to this. Job, Job had some serious, serious wealth, and Job was a seriously godly man. That's Job. And the whole book of Job is the story of how God allowed Satan to take away all of his possessions, to take away his health, didn't allow Satan to kill him, so that, so that God could see that Job was worshiping God, not for what God could give him, but for God himself. And so the whole book, the whole book is this story of Job as a man who would suffer patiently for the name of the Lord. God called him to suffer. And I want to drop into... Chapter 1, verse 8. And I do want to read that. Chapter 1, verse 8. So if you don't have a Bible, peek in on someone else's. If you've got one, Job chapter 1, verse 8. In fact, let's go to verse 6 just to get the context. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Fascinating account here of heaven. There's stuff going on, guys, that we don't even know. But as I read this, I'd like, to, I'd like you to please note something. Remember, we're still on trial. Evidence is being placed before the court. I want to ask you, as you read this account, who's in charge? Okay, just, just, you just pay attention, okay? One of my seminary professors used to say this. Who's zooming who? All right? And it's God, baby. It's God. That helps us defeat a dualistic mentality that we suffer with, particularly here in South Florida, that somehow good and evil are fighting on the same footing. It's not Bible. It's not Bible. God's in control of all. Now, this presents a whole lot of other questions. But any evil that occurs, yeah, it's because God allows it. I know, that just created another bunch of questions, but trust me, God's in control. All right, good. I'm glad you believe that. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, who picked the fight? 
Who picked this fight? You got it. He picked it. He picked it. The baddest one in the gang here is the Lord, okay? Yeah. He's good, right? It's that kind of bad. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. That's an amazing verse. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, this is Pino's version, yeah, sure, he just loves you because you give him a bunch of really good things. The Bible says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will, underline this, curse your face, curse you to your face. So what's at stake here? What's at stake here is, will we bless God in our suffering or will we curse him to his face? Can you resonate with that? Can you relate to that one? When things are going well, I am ready to bless God to his face. When everything breaks, my health, my house, my relationships, I'm ready to curse God. Now, I may not curse him like, like, you know, sort of that kind of curse, but I curse him by mumbling and grumbling and doubting. So that's the fight. You ready? Okay, let's see what happens. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Could Satan touch Job's things apart from God's permission? No, never, ever, ever, ever. Now, I know that brings up a whole other set of questions. Why would the Lord let him do that? Well, we're back to Mr. Miyagi, okay? I don't know exactly. And on this side of heaven, I'm like Daniel, wax on, wax on, with no idea why this is going to help me. But I trust God's greatness. And I trust God's compassion and mercy. I need to see God's greatness and his compassion and mercy when I'm waxing a fleet of cars and it hurts and I have no idea why this has anything to do with what I think is important right now. And that's what happened in the book of Job. For all these chapters, Job is wrestling with God and he's wrestling with his friends and he's saying, why, why, why? I don't understand this. And some of Job's own self-righteousness is revealed and of course his friend's self-righteousness is revealed. And in a moment we're going to get to the resolution of this whole thing at the end of the chapters. But here's what you got to understand. That in the midst of all of his suffering... Job, however imperfectly, however imperfectly, because Job saw the greatness of God, because Job believed that God is compassionate and God is merciful. Job complained. Job sinned, yes, but he never broke faith with God. How can I say that? Because look what it says. Look what it says here in Job chapter 1, verse 20. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Job has just received word that all of his wealth is gone, all of his cattle are gone, all of his servants are gone, and a hurricane, Hurricane Andrew came and blew out his house with all seven of his children eating in it, and they were crushed to death. He's just heard all of that news, and look what he does in chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and did what? Worshipped. 
That is typically not my response when I hear something as small as, your water heater just broke. Prime example, Saturday morning, 8.30 in the morning, electricity goes off, boom. That, I did not worship. <laughs> I got on the phone, calling FPL. But he worshiped. Look at verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In your suffering, dear one, God wants you to see his greatness and his mercy and his compassion so that you would not sin by charging God with wrong. It doesn't mean that you have to do it perfectly. That's the mercy of God. I don't have time to go through all this, but test number two, Satan went back to God and said, oh, sure, he's worshiping you, great. Yeah, yeah, I'm impressed. I'm really impressed with Job, sure, right? I tell you what, God, take his health and he'll curse you to his face. And God allows Satan to take Job's health. He allows him to do that. So from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, he's covered with sores. As a matter of fact, the scene that we find him in is sitting on a garbage heap, the richest man in the East, with nothing, children dead, covered head to toe in sores, grabbed a broken piece of pottery, and is scraping the sores off of his body. And in Job 2.10, Job 2.10, He responds to his wife who had just told him to curse God and die. The very thing that Satan was trying to get him to do, curse God, he refuses to do. Look at Job 2.10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, remember, now we're back to James and we're back to us. And on the witness stand is Job. But now the defense attorney. Now, I'm not saying defense attorneys are Satan. I'm not saying that, okay? Don't ever think I said that. But let's just say the Satan is represented by the defense attorney here. (laughs) And he's trying to defend the person who's accusing God. And he says, yeah, but Job, isn't it true? on the night of Job chapter 16, verse 12, and on the night of Job chapter 20, verse 6, you were complaining to God. Uh, Yes, it is. And isn't it true that by the time we get to Job chapter uh, 32, you're complaining against not only God, but all your friends, and you're maintaining your self-righteousness? Yes, that is true. And Jesus stands up and says, yes, sir, but I'd like to tell you something. Uh, I died for those sins. And uh, here's the proof of that. If you'll please turn to James chapter 5, verse 11. It talks about, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Wait, what do you mean steadfastness? That doesn't sound like a steadfast person. That sounds like a grumbler and a complaining. Yes, exactly. But when I wash him with my blood, it's seen as steadfastness. That's my hope. That's my hope. Because if that's not my hope, I'm putting the microphone down. Let's just go out and get a nice meal. And let's just go home and watch something, okay? 
But my hope is that God does not require perfect steadfastness and perfect patience and suffering, that I can complain, and I do complain, but that God washes me by the blood of Christ. I see the greatness of God in Jesus. And it helps me be faithful and patient in my suffering. And so what was the solution for Job? Turn all the way now to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Yeah, that's right. Chapter 2, chapter 38. We had 36 chapters of complaining. (laughs) 36 chapters. Three times his three friends go at Job, and three times he comes back. So, I mean, this is a long trial, man. It was a long trial. So, in chapter 38, the judge stands up. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the land, the line upon it? Verse 6. Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? He's talking about the earth right now, not a building, the earth. Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And Job, in one instance, because suffering reveals the character of God, Job sees it, and he shuts his mouth. Look at Job 42.1. Job 42.1. By the way, God goes on revealing himself through these questions from chapter 38 all the way to chapter 42. And in 42.1, Job responds to God's self-revelation. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered, this is Job now confessing, what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 4, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. What Job is doing is he's, he's rephrasing what God said to him and then he's answering in humble repentance. And he says, hear and I will speak and I will question you and you make it known to me. And here it goes, verse 5. Here's the key, folks. Underline verse 5. This is the whole purpose of this message is that suffering reveals God and his character like nothing else. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, but now, my eye sees you. Oh, friend, God wants to reveal himself to you through your suffering. Through your suffering. Job is prostrate before God, having seen God. If you've seen the movie, and I don't mean to trivialize God, but oftentimes illustrations help us understand. If you've seen the movie, you'll understand that Daniel, doing wax on, wax off, was actually practicing the very moves he would use when he got into the fight with the rival karate gang and their thugs. And those moves helped him defeat them. And so scripture says that the very suffering that God calls us to go through, though we don't understand it, though it seems like it has nothing to do with the task at hand, those are the very things that forge the character and the maturity and the depth and the knowledge of God and the prayer and the patience that enable us to win not some citywide karate trophy, but the very eternal reward of God, God God's grace, God's kingdom, God's God's everything.
judge says, case closed. The evidence is clear. The evidence is clear. Going back to James 5, he says, you've seen the end of Job. And what's the end of Job? Look at verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose, that word purpose is the end, of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you see the karate kid, you see the end of it. Oh, Miyagi was justified in that training method because Daniel won the contest because of what he learned through the suffering of wax on, wax off. And you've seen the ending. Now something much more important. You've seen the ending. We don't have to wait till Jesus comes back, though it will be, ju- it will be verified there. But we've seen it. Our two star witnesses, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Job, it's proof, evidence done, case closed. God is compassionate. God is merciful. Job proves it. Job proves it. Job proves it. You see, when Job prostrated himself before God, he humbled himself. And not only do we see God most clearly in our sufferings, because his greatness is what sustains us, but we learn humility. We learn humility. Look at verse 6. Don't have to look at it. Just listen to it. Back in Job 42. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The Bible is full of blessings for the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. James himself said in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, the very Satan who was trying to get Job to curse God The reason he fell, Lucifer, was because of pride. So our greatest enemy is pride. So our greatest friend is suffering. Because suffering, first of all, enables us to see God as we could never see him without it. Because it's the greatness of God. It's the mercy of God. It's the character of God that we need to see to deliver us. And then number two, it helps us to humble ourselves. And you and I need to be humbled. We need to be humbled. We need to be humbled. We need to be humbled. This vision of God produced humility in Job. And it produced a blessing. And Job tells us at the end of the matter, what God wanted to accomplish through Job was to reveal himself as a compassionate and merciful God. Are times hard, dear friend? And I know they are. Listen, uh, some of you right now are suffering in ways I could never know. And as I was preparing this message, your faces were before my mind's eye. And I prayed for you. I pray for the V-gays right now. I pray for those that are suffering with health needs, with financial needs. You need a job. You're worried about even keeping your own home. Those that are suffering with relational things. Those that are suffering maybe at the hands of, of, of spiritual warfare. Those that are suffering just like all of us do. And just with our own sin. Here's the point. If you're, if you're having hard times, if you feel alienated from God, consider James. Consider the steadfastness of the prophets and Job. If we remain steadfast by seeing a great God who's compassionate and merciful, then we'll be blessed for we'll draw near to him and we will see him as never before and our end is sure to be good. The Lord is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Point three, be patient in suffering as you consider God's compassion 
in mercy. You see, we can only be patient in suffering when we see a vision of God as he really is, compassionate and merciful. It is true that our suffering tests that vision of God as compassionate and merciful. It is true that, in fact, our suffering opens the door for us to believe the opposite of this truth that God is compassionate. We are tempted to believe that God is hard-hearted and unfeeling. And it's true that suffering can open the door to believe the opposite, that God is merciful. We can see him as being pitiless, ruthless. But, oh, friends, Job solved that. God didn't judge Job for his complaining. He helped him. God won't judge you for your complaining. If you come to him, he'll help you. And so the battle in our sufferings is to focus on God and his greatness, compassion, and mercy in order to remain steadfast in our belief and confession of the truth that he is compassionate and merciful. Listen, here's the deal. He must fill our gaze rather than our problem or our circumstance filling our gaze. My hand is not that big. But if I put my hand right here, it's all I see. It dominates my life. But what I need is for someone to slowly pull my hand back, for me to get perspective. I don't need for my gaze to be filled with my hand, but rather to be filled with God. So let my hand represent your problems, your suffering, the things you think you can't overcome. Some some of you, it's right here. It fills your gaze. Oh, it is real. I'm not saying it's not. And I know your pain is real. But allow the Lord to pull it back. And get some perspective. And then look up as Job did. As God said, Job, come here. Let me show you how I created the world. Let me show you how I, how I, I managed to do all this. Wow. Come over here, Job. Now, Job didn't have the benefit of this. We do. He says, come over here, Al. Let me show you where my compassion was revealed. It's that hill right there. Jose said, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the hill, from the Lord. From the hills comes my help. It's one hill. It's Calvary. Hey, come over here, Al. I did all that. I'm great, but I'm compassionate and merciful. Look. 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 That's what we need, folks. And this is what will bring us maturity and blessing and grace. To that end, let us look at the place where God's compassion and kindness are most clearly seen. And that is at the table of the Lord. Before we get there, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to pray for you just for a moment. Ushers, would you begin to move toward the communion table? Worship band, would you begin to move this way? The rest of us, let's pray for a moment. Father, I ask you right now in Jesus' name to comfort those who are sitting, metaphorically speaking, maybe not literally, they're not sitting on a garbage heap scraping sores off their body with a broken pot but they feel like it, Lord. It feels to them like their children are dead and their possessions are gone. For some, literally, there is a death that they're dealing with, a health problem. But for others, it may be a battle somewhere, something that we can't put our finger on, but we're suffering nonetheless. We find ourselves tempted to accuse you. We don't understand, God. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to go through this? Lord, why don't, why don't you just answer my prayer, God? I can't take this anymore. Oh, Lord, for those right now, as we prepare communion, may you gently pull their hand away from their eyes. Pull 
the circumstance, the disappointment, the fear, the pain, the health issue, the financial problem away from their eyes that has filled their gaze. And, oh, Lord, would you fill their gaze with your greatness, with your compassion, and with your mercy. Friends, and ushers, you can start coming down. Friends, this celebration that we're about to to partake in is a call for us to worship as Job did. It's a call for us to believe that no suffering is senseless, no pain is pointless, because God will transform our suffering for good when Christ is revealed in glory. And, And a revelation of Christ in glory is prefigured, it's foreshadowed in communion. This celebration is for those who believe God's compassion and mercy in Christ and who submit their lives to him. It is for believers who follow Christ. And if you're not a believer this morning, then please take a moment to consider the facts of God's compassion and mercy. Before the ushers even serve this, these facts need to be clearly seen in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. These are the symbols. This bread symbolizes his body. This cup symbolizes his blood. And what does the bread represent? It represents the body of Christ broken for you. It's his body, Jesus' body, that endured the wrath of God, the penalty for your sins. You see, Jesus, in a much greater way, and again, I don't mean to trivialize this, as Miyagi was able to jump into the fray and defeat the rogue gang of karate school fighters, Jesus, far greater, jumps into the fray and defeated the rogue gang, Satan, the devils on our own flesh in this world. He defeated them on the cross. Colossians 2 says that on the cross, he made a show of them openly. There's nothing to fear of Satan or demons or the flesh or the world because Jesus defeated them. And he defeated them by giving his body. Colossians 2 says he put put them to open shame. He defeated them on the cross. See, what doesn't make sense is that in God's weakness... His weakness is stronger than the greatest strength of man. And his weakness in the foolishness of the cross is where he jumped over the fence and defeated all of our enemies. That's why Satan has to ask permission. That's why we don't fear demons or Satan. We fear God. Because he humbled himself and was broken. Do you see that? Oh, may may this fill your gaze this morning. He's your champion. He's your savior. He's great. And, the, and, and the, the, cup, the cup represents the blood of Christ that's poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the trophy of God's acceptance. Not some citywide karate trophy, but the trophy of eternal acceptance, the smile of God. Why? Because of Jesus' act on the cross. Not my act of contrition. Jesus' act of pouring out his blood. Oftentimes people will say, this represents the compassion and mercy of God. God's compassion to help you in your suffering. God's mercy to forgive you in your sins. No one suffered like Jesus. He was broken for you. Receive his compassion. And no one could die for your sins. But Jesus, receive his forgiveness. That's what we're doing. And if you don't know the Lord, then this isn't for you. You're in a serious place. You're open to all kinds of demons and all kinds of things of the world. But oh, you can run to your Savior right now. This could be your table. This could be your meal. It's set. Come. 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 I'm going to pray for you again right now.
before the usher service. Come to the Lord. Lord, I just want to pray again as you call those to repent who are, who are under the rogue master Satan, the flesh and the world, and have rebelled against you and are open for beatings at, at any moment whenever Satan wants to administer them. Lord, would you, would you deliver them? Would they run to you, the master, the Lord, who defeated, who broke the power of darkness on the cross, who put them to shame, who put them on the run, the champion who defeated them on the cross, in the resurrection. May they humble themselves before you as Job did and says, I've heard of him, but now I see him with my eyes. Oh God, reveal yourself to them. And they would repent and believe in Jesus' name. Oh, may God bless you, my friends. Ushers, would you please serve us now? And as the ushers are serving us, we're going to sing this song through the precious blood. You may remain seated. Please sing along with us. And when everyone's been served, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together.